Thanks for listening to The Rest is Politics. Sign up to The Rest is Politics Plus to enjoy ad-free listening, receive a weekly newsletter, join our members' chat room and gain early access to live show tickets. Just go to therestispolitics.com. That's therestispolitics.com. Welcome to another episode of The Rest is Politics with me, Alastair Campbell. And with me, Rory Stewart. And we're going to talk about matters Nadim Zahawi, matters Richard Sharp, the BBC and the Boris Johnson sleaze. We're going to talk about Sunak more generally. How is he doing after his first 100 days? We're on the third anniversary of the exit from the European Union. I suspect we may touch upon that. And I think we need to touch on the Middle East as well. And also, Rory, I'm very keen to talk about Nagorno-Karabakh. So your friend Nadim Zahawi, I predicted he would go. He has gone, but he's gone in a way that I think has not just damaged him and his career, but I think it's damaged Rishi Sunak as well. Yeah, well, I think the, I agree. I think the lesson, uh, there are a couple of lessons from this. One of them is the problem for politicians, and I think that comes into conflict of interest and cover-up. So I think when we look at people's finances and their income, the big question is always around conflict of interest. And here the clear conflict of interest was that he was the Chancellor of the Exchequer when he was negotiating his own tax bill uh, with HMRC. So he was negotiating with his own department as their boss, clear conflict of interest. And second thing is his attempts to deny claims that he wasn't being investigated by HMRC and attempts to shut down this incredibly active ex-Clifford Chance tax lawyer. Dan Needle. Dan Needle, yep. And then the final thing is, if you're going to go, go quickly. If he'd gone absolutely immediately, as soon as this came out, he would have had a chance potentially of coming back as a minister. People like Peter Mandelson, Amber Rudd, many others have resigned and come back. But if you try to cling on so long that you're eventually sacked, um, you damage your career in a way that it's very difficult to come back from. Although yesterday, number 10, apparently, at their briefing said that uh, Rishi Sunak didn't rule him out coming back. I think the problem here is that Rishi Sunak is, I can't work out whether he's, he, he feels weakened by these various factions around him, or whether actually he doesn't really have a kind of a political impulse that tells him instinctively where things are going to end. I did an interview for the BBC about two weeks before Zahawi eventually went. And they said, you know, what advice would you give um, to Sunak? And I said, work out where you think it's going to end and get there first. And it was obvious. I think it was obvious to everybody that you couldn't possibly justify what Zahawi had done and the way he was defending himself. And I also think it was interesting how Zahawi's letter of resignation, there was no apology there was no acceptance of the the findings of the report that Sunak had based his decision to sack him upon by Laurie Magnus, the ethics advisor. And there was this rather sort of, I thought, rather pathetic bleat about some of the coverage. That too, I think, probably damaged him. But he clearly thinks, I mean, you probably know better than I do what the sort of various factions are around this. But I think he felt that Sunak was maybe too weak to sack him. And he needed the ammunition of that report. One thing to give a bit of credit to Sunak as opposed to Boris Johnson is that when we spoke last week, we were 
talking as though the waiting for the Magnus report would be exactly what Boris Johnson was always doing, which was trying to sort of buy two or three months in order yeah. to hope that it went down. And actually, to the credit of the ethics advisor and Rishi Sunak, that report came out very quickly, delivered on a Sunday, totally unambiguous, mm. actually quite clearly written, well written by Laurie Magnus and yeah. Nadim Sahabi was fired on Sunday. But you're absolutely right that there was no reason to wait for that report or commission that report. Um, and in a way, it indicates maybe what you're pointing to, which is um, questions about political antennae. I think you'd probably say, just from a political point of view, either get rid of the person immediately, or, and we disapprove of this deeply, but I guess if you're being Machiavellian and Boris Johnson-like, you're using the report to try to brush the thing under the carpet for four months. But this, in a sense, is the worst of all worlds, which is that you just get another six days of being hammered in the media, and then you do what everyone knew you were going to do anyway. Rishi Sunak got the political pain or shared the political pain with Nadim Zahawi, but he got none of the credit. He got no credit back in the, in the reputational bank. Again, we said this, I think, two weeks in a row. For him to stand up at the Prime Minister's questions, and as he did when the story was first really kind of taking, getting hold in the political psyche, as it were, in the political debate, he said that Nadim Zahawi had dealt with it and all the questions were answered. And, and that simply was not the case. And, you know, you've got to be very, very careful in those situations. If you're the prime minister, these words, they get noticed more because you're the prime minister. You know, professionalism, integrity, accountability, he deliberately made that a big thing. And that means that he's, you know, I think there are maybe lesser scandals now will become bigger scandals because of that. It's a little bit like John Major with his back to basics. Now, poor old John Major, it got completely sort of, you know, twisted against him and not not least by us um, and, and certainly by parts of the media. But I think John Major sort of saying back to basics and family values and, and all that stuff. And then every small scandal became a big scandal and every big scandal became a huge scandal. And I think anything now to do with financial impropriety within the Conservative Party and the Cabinet is going to be a real problem for Rishi Sunak. It is a big problem. And yet the tragedy of the thing is that I think he genuinely is a better person than Boris Johnson. He's trying harder. He wasn't trying to use that report just to buy himself three months and no. rush it under the carpet. No, I agree, with, I agree with that. But you're right, he's mishandled it. Um, a couple of things, Anster, which I think be interesting to hear from you on. One of them is just this question of, how you get the judgment call right on when to act and when not. I remember when I was uh, an MP and got myself in trouble in my constituency in my first few months uh, because I'd said to a journalist from The Sun uh, that there were people in my constituency who held their trousers <laughs> up with twine. And I went to talk to your successor uh, in, in number 10. The story at the time was that they had to calculate whether the story would go away within three days or not. And if the story went away in a couple of days, they would try to bluff it out. And if they thought that it was going to continue for much more than three days, the tendency was to try to force someone to resign and throw them under the under the bus. Does does that does that resonate with you? Is that the way you thought about it? Or do you think about it in a different way? Oh my lord, I'm I'm amazed that that one even got to that level. <laughs> who who was that? Was that Craig Oliver? No, no, no. It was the um, it was the man who went to jail eventually for um. Oh, Andy Coulson. Andy Coulson, yeah. Andy yeah. Coulson. Oh, my Lord. So your, your thing about the farmers with twine. 
I think I think to be fair, Andy Coulson was not very interested in the subject. I think it was me as a neurotic, anxious. Were you getting MP, a bit paranoid? Getting Were paranoid you? and going to see him. No, I think he wasn't very interested. He gave me about five minutes of his time. I'd have been very surprised at that. So, and did it run for three days, or did it no. just sort of go away? No, it oh, went I, I think days. Andy, to his credit, probably worked out this is going to blow over. This little guy's really clearly a bit worried. I'm just going to patronise him a bit. <laughs> Then he'll go away. And then I'll go and tell David Cameron, my God, that Rory Stewart, he's a bit sort of woolly, isn't he? <laughs> anyway, tell me about this. This, how, how do you work out when you can sort of tough it out and get behind your minister and it's going to be okay? I, I guess you would have thought about this, weren't you, when Peter Mandelson got in trouble. You would have had to calculate, is this going to blow over? Can we stick by him? Because Tony Blair cared about him, would have wanted to keep him, or are we going to have to encourage him to go. Was that an example? Well, I mean, there are quite a few. I, look, and the, the Peter Mandelson one is sort of, you know, is quite painful in lots of different ways. I, I think on the second resignation in particular, that we were probably driven more than we should have been by this sort of noise and the frenzy. Um, particularly, I think, I thought, I felt this a lot during the Johnson era where there were scandals far worse than anything Peter was alleged to have done, which didn't seem to get any level of frenzy at all. Um, so th- that that would have been one definitely where I think we were being pressured by the noise and by the frenzy. I think with other ones, it was much clearer. I remember, uh, I can't remember if we talked before about Ron Davis, the Welsh Secretary, when he was um, arrested on or the police picked him up after he'd gone for a, a walk on Clapham Common. And and it, it, when he came in to try to explain what had happened, I can remember the look in Tony's eyes. And Tony kept sort of just looking over to me with this look that said, I've already made my mind up. Um, and you didn't need to sort of linger too long on that. And, and Ron was gone by the end of the day. So it depends, I think, on... I guess the, the the personal and the political value of the minister, definitely important. I don't think it is really about the media. I think it's about what you feel deep down, whether you think this is right or wrong, what's happened is right or wrong. I think that does come into it in a big way. Question, Alistair, I think also, which was relevant to you. I mean, as you say, it's very painful. I don't want to drag over Peter Mandelson because he's a, a friend of yours. But, but to remind listeners, he resigned twice. And the second time was over his role in brokering a British passport for a donor to the Millennium Dome. And the thing that, at least in the, in the Guardian reporting at the time, they said that in an hour-long meeting, Tony Blair discussed why the media and Alistair Campbell and ministers were misled for 48 hours about Mr. Mandelson's phone call to Mike O'Brien, the immigration minister, in June 1998. So I think that's something that you also raised in some of these other resignations, which is as, as the communications director, you wanted to know the facts and you got very, very angry if you felt people weren't being straight with you on what had happened. That's what I think Rishi Sunak didn't do in relation to Zahawi. You've got to demand the facts and you've got to try to get the facts. And it's in that process that I think sometimes, yes, confusion can happen, muddle can take place, but also a sense can develop that you're not getting the full picture here, and is there a reason for that? And that might might colour 
your assessment at, at the time. I think that the other thing that is important here is, is the sort of leadership and the relationships of trust. So I can remember, for example, with Robin Cook, the very the first big issue with Robin Cook when there was the whole the story about him having an affair with his uh, with with a member of his team and. Um, the mythology was that I told him you have to choose between your wife and your mistress. It wasn't like that at all. However, there was a judgment to be made about whether this mattered sufficiently. And that was a point where the value of the minister, if you like, was a factor. Tony did not want to lose Robin Cook. Was it also that you felt by that stage that British life was also changing and that somebody having an affair, which was considered a really big problem back in the 80s, by the 90s was something that you were beginning to feel this is more to do with somebody's personal private life and is less relevant. I mean, if I go back to where I began, the thing that I think ministers should resign over is, is conflict of interest. Yeah, and corruption. And, and, a, and an affair isn't isn't about corruption or conflict of interest. Well, it could be. It could be dependent upon who it was. If you're having an affair with a, with a Russian agent, that would be a bit of a problem. Like Mr. Profumo. Indeed, indeed. Um, I mean, I don't think it wasn't that it was a problem because it was going to be a problem because the newspapers were going to go big on it. And indeed, the news of the world did go big on it. And, and, but by that time, Robin was clear that as far as he was concerned, his marriage was over. I had said to him, that it's utterly up to you what you decide to do. This is what got mangled afterwards. I said to him, but my advice in this situation is clarity. In other words, you have to be clear what you are going to do and what you're going to say about it. And he slept on it and came back the next day and said, um, I'm going to leave my wife and, and, and move in with Gaynor. But I think where you're right, I think it wasn't that maybe the culture had changed, but I think the other thing that that we were quite keen to do was not, as it were, on the first, as it were, back-to-basics family value scandal that hit the new government to say we're going to throw him overboard for the press. So, so that's, that's a difficult judgment call because sometimes, like the awful Boris Johnson, just by toughing it out, he almost got away with surviving scandals. Which He got away with a lot of scandals. Yes. Yeah. A lot. And, and so I, I wonder whether somewhere in what Rishi Sunak is struggling with in the culture of the Conservative Party is that Nadim Zahawi, who'd been part of those Boris Johnson governments and seen Boris just defending ministers mm. through thick and thin, refusing to resign himself, refusing to let anyone resign, um, was still living in a culture where he was used to that Boris culture, just tough it out, ignore it, pay no attention whatsoever. Yeah, I, th I, 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 I think that's, what, that's the influence of Johnson, is he corrupted the whole lot of them in terms of what they thought was acceptable and what wasn't. I find it mind-blowing that anybody can think that that was not an immediate, clear conflict of interest, and clearly Laurie Magnus did. I mean, when you read his report, as you say, it's very, it's brutally clear. And I'm really pleased, in a way, that that's something Rishi Sunak did and brought somebody back. Can you remember Boris Johnson having run through two ethics advisors resigned, which you would have thought would lead to the resignation of the prime minister, right? Mm. And then he decided he didn't need an ethics advisor anymore. Liz Truss said that she had such a good understanding of ethics that she didn't need to be <laughs> advised on it. Shame that the same couldn't be said about her, her handling of the economy. Uh, so I, d I do think it weakens Rishi Sunak. And I guess it is. I mean, it's 100 days. And I know we're less focused on the 100 days thing in the UK than maybe the States, where it's a big thing, you know, the president's first 100 days. But what was your what's your what's your overall assessment of, of Rishi Sunak's first hundred days? Well, um, I think 
on on the plus side, he's he's a big improvement on Boris Johnson and Liz Truss. I think he's somebody who, a bit like John Major, um, could well, after his political career, have a sort of position in public life and a respect, which I don't think Boris Johnson or Liz Truss will ever attain. I, I notice with my colleagues and friends that they are much more comfortable working with him and in his cabinet. They they like the fact that he delegates, he trusts them. They think he's serious and professional, does his job well. But I think, as you said, he is struggling to project outwards and mm. do the big public leadership bit. I think he seems to be a hardworking, serious internal manager. But politics, ultimately, particularly in a crisis, and my goodness, the UK is in a crisis, as, as you're going to remind us, the IMF just announced that the UK is going to be the only major economy that's going into recession this year. And what he's so far failing to do is do the really big business of saying, yep, we're in a mess. Yes, it's partly our fault. It's not entirely our fault. There are other things going on in the world, and this is the path out of it. Come with me. And, and that, that we're not yet feeling. Mm. And I mean, I also think he's being further deliberately weakened by uh, Boris Johnson constantly just trying to be on manoeuvres, get himself noticed. I thought that story yesterday, I mean, I know he's got a number of client journalist friends still in the media, but that utter bilge about Putin threatened to kill him by sending a missile, I mean, utter, total crap. And some of the journalists yesterday they produced the briefing note that Number 10 had done on that specific call, which was all about how they agreed to keep in touch. And, you know, the <laughs> President Putin was pleased that the Prime Minister, you know, I mean, all this rubbish. And it's just like, but it's done deliberately, I think, to show, you know, I can still get noticed. I can still get a message. I still know how to manipulate the media in a way that Rishi doesn't. He's our one of, of the sitting MPs. He's the one guy who's part of that real populist tradition. And one of the things that your friend Moses Naim, the, the man of populism, post-truth and polarization, points yeah. out in his book, is that one element of these populist leaders, particularly in Latin America, is that they do separate themselves that, that from their parties. They're able to be individuals. He, he points out Fujimori in Peru was an example of this. And that's what Boris Johnson is trying to be. He's trying to be still the big figure, the big charismatic figure who can somehow transcend the fact that he's on the back benches. And mm. there's almost nobody else who could do that. Many others threatened to do that. I mean, every time that Michael Gove was removed from office, he would definitely cause trouble for prime ministers. But Boris Johnson does it on a different scale. You know, he's got Jacob Rees-Mogg out there saying he should be chairman of the Conservative Party. He's doing visits to Ukraine. He says he's standing again. And the story, obviously, in a year's time, that he's going to put out is he's going to be the only person who can win the Conservatives the election will be the story. Mm -hmm. Well, I think he's absolutely wrong about that. I think it would be the absolute death throes for them if they brought him back, but there we are. Um, I do think, by the way, one thing that Sunak could do that would indicate strength and would also be the right thing to do would actually, if he were to announce that this whole business of Johnson and Truss having resignation honours given that they both basically left office in disgrace, that he just says it's not happening. Because they have to be agreed by, by number 10. So if he were just to say that, now, it would be, as it were, a declaration of, Johnson would see it as a declaration of war. But given that Johnson is effectively spending most of his time waking up and thinking, how can I make Sunak's life more difficult today? 
I think he's going to need to take it on. It's a bit like Keir Starmer has done with Jeremy Corbyn. It's a, I, yeah, it's, that's a tough call because the, the problem is once you start doing that, you have the possibility, which we've never had in British politics, of when a new government comes in, when Labour takes over from the Conservatives, refusing to accept the resignation offer. But there shouldn't be. The what is the party. point of these resignation honours? Well, you, you hate the whole system, don't you? Yes, so but I, I particularly hate that because it's <laughs> – it, I do hate the whole system. But it's like, you know, particularly in the hands of somebody like Johnson, I just – you know it's going to be his mates, the people he's made promises to, the donors, the people whose houses he lives in. You know, it's just so sordid. And the, it's not as if the House of Lords currently has a great reputation, Rory. Anyway, I think Sunak, he, he's probably too weak to do it. And I don't mean that as a, as a character assessment. I mean, politically, he's probably too weak to do it. Um, but I really do think that would be a good thing for him to do. Did you do a resignation letter or did you just... I did do a resignation letter. I did a resignation letter sent to Theresa May saying that I would not be prepared to serve in Boris Johnson's cabinet. And it was uh, coordinated. So I did it with three of us did it. Philip Hammond, who was the Chancellor of the Exchequer, David Gork, who was Lord Chancellor, and myself were the three cabinet ministers who decided to resign before before Boris Johnson came in. And did you get a nice reply? Yep, get a very nice reply from Theresa May. Have you yep. framed it? Is it on your toilet wall? Um, actually, no, I haven't framed it put on my toilet wall. No, I'm worried I've actually lost it, to be honest. I oh, know Lord, it is. you can't do that. Yeah. When, um, when we were talking about Robin Cook, I can remember when he finally resigned, which was, was obviously over Iraq, uh, and he was Commons leader by then, and Robin and I had about half a dozen meetings to go over the exact wording, both of his letter and of Tony's. Um, now, there were other resignations where, you know, it didn't require that level of, of input, but the, the, it was going to be such a big, a big sort of issue when he resigned. And Robin, Robin was very, very grown up about it. He didn't want to – I remember him saying, I d- look, I'm resigning because I can't support the policy, but I don't want to make life any more difficult for yeah. Tony. I don't want to just become a sort of, you know, serial rebel. Um, so we had this, this sort of, you know, and he drafted something and, and, and I drafted something and, and we sort of, <laughs> I remember sitting there and I, and I, I drafted something for him where I talked about, you know, how proud he was about his role in the Kosovo conflict and, 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 the, and the military action we took in Sierra Leone and all this. And he said at one point, he said, do you think you could focus a little less on my war record and a little <laughs> more, a little more on my ethical foreign policy? <laughs> and so, and so, but eventually we sort of, you know, we, we batted it backwards and forwards. And obviously Tony was seeing these drafts and eventually we got to a place where, you know, obviously the fact of his resignation was, was huge news. But then you got a sense from the letters of there was a sort of a mutual respect and Robin very, very clear that, you know, he understands the decision. He understands why Tony Blair wants to make that decision, but he can't support it. Yeah. And he's reached the and, point where he can't stay in the government. And I think that's a big test, isn't it? Whether, whether they're still on side or not. I mean, obviously the, the resignation letter I was sending in against Boris Johnson was not being negotiated with anybody. It was designed to hit Boris Johnson. And that was true for the people who resigned at the end of his time when they were trying to bring him down. That def- those definitely wouldn't have been negotiated with number mm. 10. Now you mentioned um, you mentioned Jacob Rees-Mogg there. I'm doing we're, we're recording this on Tuesday morning. I'm doing Tuesday evening. This evening I'm doing a Radio Four debate, live debate on Brexit three years on. So two questions, Rory. 
Um, I've done several debates with Jacob Rees-Mogg. He's quite a tricky character to debate against because he is unbelievably slippery and gaslights par excellence. But he does it in that, is it an Etonian thing, Roy? Can I, are, there, are there any kind of Etonian tricks you could maybe teach me that I could, that I could use? Well, I think he's, he's, he, his weapon is, is not really old Etonian. It's a kind of mad, sort of anachronism he's he's mainlining a sort of vision of a kind of edwardian man it's a sort of comic opera excessive courtesy yeah incredibly polite language never getting flustered mm. um no it, it's it is it's a very particular style if you were really really bored my greatest debate against jacob rees mogg was in the house of commons where i defended the European uh, Human Rights Act against him in a in a debate of an hour and fifteen minutes, just the two of us going at each other in the House of Commons. What a really boring, boring evening! <laughs> I, I once actually, I was in Brixton once, and I was stopped by a British Nigerian man who owned a hair extension shop, who said to me, "That debate between you and Jacob Rees-Mogg on human rights is the best thing I've ever watched." <laughs> Did you win the debate? Uh, I, well, actually, there wasn't any vote at the end of it. So there's no way. But, but did you feel you won it? I felt I won it, but but Matthew Paris, who's normally a fan of mine, then came out and I think wrote an article saying he thought Jacob Rees-Mogg had bested me. Oh right. So what's your tip? Give me a tip. So I think you want to make the audience see what he's doing, expose it. So I think you might want to say, Jacob, I know what you're going to do here. You're going to be awfully courteous and polite and use some very fancy language. And I, I know what you're going to say is that, you know, there are still opportunities from Brexit. So it sort of spike his guns before he does it. I know that he's going to say that because of Brexit, we managed to do the vaccine rollout and the money for the health services has already been given, both of which are total lies. Yeah, um, exactly. Yeah, I think that's not a bad tip, but a preemptive rebuttal. Good. Well, let's on, on that, let's take a break <laughs> and we'll return to Israel and Nagorno-Karabakh. <laughs> Welcome back to The Rest is Politics with me, Alistair Campbell. And with, and with me, me, Rory Stewart. I, Alistair was about to say, with me, Alistair Campbell, and me, Rory Stewart. <laughs> um, listen, um, Alistair, I really, really enjoyed talking to your friend and my hero, uh, Alan Milburn, on The Rest is Politics leading, I think, the best interview we've done. I mean, it's partly my theory that it's great getting someone who's no longer an active politician. They'd be a bit, a bit more honest and open. But I also thought he was really challenging. He's very, very proud of Labour. He's very bright. But he was also pretty brutally clear about the fact that he could, he was still proud of many things that are controversial. PFIs in the National Health Service, bringing private sector in to work in the National Health Service, and his absolute belief that markets were necessary to improve the performance of the NHS. Controlled markets. Controlled markets, yeah. Yeah. I thought that, that, that you weren't alone, by the way. I mean, I was looking... Um, Rest is Politics Twitter feed put out the links to the to the podcast. And this morning before I went swimming, I was just having a look at some of the replies. And, you know, we get pretty positive stuff in the main, even on Twitter in response to our podcast. But honestly, it was like a – I actually sent it to Alan this morning. I said, listen, this is a love-in. There was a little bit about, you know, people criticizing for marketization, PFI, et cetera. There were kind of few – sort of, you know, left of wing of the Labour Party criticism. But in the main, it was honestly, it was, it was like, it really was like a kind of, you know, wow, this guy was amazing, which look, I've known Alan for a long time. And, and I just thought that was him being him. Well, there's something really important here, which is that I think it was a glimpse of what made New Labour so strongly appealing. 
I, I said in the interview that for, for someone like me to vote Labour, I want to hear people who sound like Alan Milburn. Mm. And that's, of course, what Tony Blair delivered in 97. Mm. And I'm sure that many of our listeners are from the political centre. Mm. And they are worried that they're not getting enough courage and clarity out of Labour. And it was wonderful, maybe, for people to hear somebody who's unimpeachably Labour, proud of Labour's record, but is also very happy to acknowledge that there are things that make sense about the market, that PFIs and the private sector being involved in health isn't necessarily a bad thing, that reform is important. And, and just tonally, I thought he was, he was respectful towards Rishi Sunak, which we don't hear often. And all of that, oddly, would be what would convince, I think, me and many people like me to mm. vote for Labour. Mm. Uh, although he, he also did say he felt that West Streeting was very much not part of the Ming Vars strategy, as he described it. I also like the fact that, um, I mean, obviously I know Alan's backstory, and I know his, about his childhood and his upbringing. I hadn't realised that he'd sort of felt he couldn't talk about that when he was a politician. Yeah. And I'm anything. thinking that's because actually maybe he... I don't know whether there was a slight sort of sense of, well, if you're coming from this poor background, you either look like you're trying to use it or you're giving, you're giving the sense that, you know, you're not really, you're not really made for this. So yeah. I think he came across very, very yeah. authentic. And for those who haven't heard Rory Stewart's hero, his word, not mine, Alan Milburn, just search leading. That's the word, single word leading wherever you get your podcasts. Now, should we turn abroad? Let's turn abroad. So, Israel-Palestine, should we start with that? Well, there's old Anthony Blinken, Secretary of State, going, he saw Netanyahu yesterday, is off to see Mahmoud Abbas today. And I really feel for the guy because, I mean, how many times can you sort of go there and say we're absolutely committed to the two-state solution and we call on both parties to blah de blah de blah de blah And... This is the reality of what's happened, I think, and, you know, it's fair to say there are, there can, you can point to faults on both sides, but that government that you've now got, in, and, and obviously what happened with the, the killings at the weekend was horrific, but you now have, and you knew this was going to happen because of just how right-wing the Israeli government now is, there was only ever going to be a security response. Is it, is it worthwhile just, make, I, as you say, we've got very sophisticated listeners, but should I, should I just try to give a, because I'm speaking to you from Jordan, um, yeah. very close to the to the Palestinian border, j just to remind people a little bit about the way in which at least Palestinians and Jordanians perceive this. Mm. So I think j just to remind people the very, very basic things, which is State of Israel emerged in 1948. And for many Palestinians, even the territory that Israel captured in 1948 involved them being displaced from their homes, and they still regard that as an occupation. That's not the way the international community regards it, but the international community is focused on what happened in 1967, which was the Six-Day War, where Israel basically in six days defeated Egypt, Syria, and Jordan, took the Golan Heights, took the West Bank, which was previously controlled by Jordan. And it's from then onwards that we really have the deep sense of the international community saying this territory is occupied Palestinian territory. It mm. should not belong to Israel. And a debate within Israel, which used to be much fiercer than it is today, between liberals saying we don't need this territory and conservatives saying this territory is vital for Israeli mm. national security. And that debate actually is 
my last visit to to Israel, I got a sense that actually the Israeli liberals are less strong than they were, that a new generation has emerged, that people are less interested in making the case for the two-stage solution. And this brings us to the final thing, which is what's at the heart of what we're dealing with now, which is that we came out of these agreements. People would have heard of the Oslo Accords, would have heard of Camp David, which was an attempt again to do it in 2000. And this divided the territory, Palestinian territory, into areas A, B, and C. Broadly speaking, area A was the areas which were absolutely Palestinian, B were ambiguous, and C were areas where there were Israeli settlements. And Israeli settlements are 400,000 Israelis who have built villages, in some cases towns or even cities, and over 100 of them are completely informal things where they just push out, take a piece of territory in the middle of what the Palestinians feel is their territory. So while the Palestinians have these scraps of territory, I think they've got 166 separate little entities. And when I was traveling through Palestine, you're going through checkpoints all the time. You're driving down essentially tunnels with breeze block on either side to try to get to somewhere like Nablus. And I I think understanding this or trying to understand it from these two points of view is is central, but I think quite difficult to articulate because even when I'm talking to you now, I'm aware that there will be many listeners on both sides saying what an outrageous way of characterizing the conflict. I think that's pretty fair. And, it, and, and also, it's, it's gone on now for, for decades with various points at which you mentioned Oslo, you mentioned Camp David. I can remember when Tony Blair went to the Middle East, not long after we'd done the Good Friday Agreement, and I'm not linking the two, I'm simply saying that at that time, there felt like this could happen. It felt like something was really moving. But unless you have, particularly the Americans, um, but the international community more broadly, really, really focused on this and really, really trying to pull every single lever that's available to you, then it just sort of, it just feels like it evaporates. And I watched Blinken with, with Netanyahu yesterday. And I think Blinken's a pretty impressive Secretary of State. And I think Biden like previous American presidents, really does feel a sense of responsibility because the American power there really matters. But that re- And that relationship with the Israelis is incredibly strong. But it's sort of, I'd, I kind of felt Blinken, it felt to me like he was slightly going through the motions. 100%. And that's, I think you put your finger on it, Alistair. And I think it's actually unspoken policy now in Washington that this is not going to be their astute. Biden has signaled that Israel-Palestine is not what this administration's concentrating on. And so they will continue saying that they call on all sides to show restraint. They will continue to use all the old language, their unconditional support for Israel. They'll keep the $3.8 billion a year, which mm. the US provides in support for Israel. You'll notice Blinken didn't mention the settlements uh, in, his, in his speech. Um, but I don't get the impression that this is something they're going to be leaning into or trying to resolve. And in the absence of that, the truth is that many of the people around the new Israeli prime minister, around Bibi, are going to be pushing hard to extend those settlements further, to reinforce them, to connect them with roads, to put the whole social security system behind them, to get electricity into them. Mm. And of course, Ben Gavir, who's the national security advisor now, or the, the head of national security department minister, has just, again, made a very provocative visit to the Temple Mount, to the Haram al-Sharif. I thought also it was the, 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 the Palestinian who committed that atrocity at the, at the weekend. When I saw the Israeli 
defense forces then being filmed by themselves and releasing the film of them going in to effectively demolish the house where he came from and, and kick out his family. His father there saying he had no idea this was happening. And I just think, and, and, and the response has been one of, um, as I say, security, 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 which I get from the kind of mindset. But at the same time, in terms, it feels like you're pushing the idea of any kind of solution further and further away. And the other thing which I think Blinken did raise, and I think was right to raise, is the Americans' worries that they have about the the the, the new government's determination to do something about the independence of the judiciary. Absolutely. And then then just to put the point of view from, from the other point of view, I mean, it's, this is incredibly presumptuous of me because I'm not in the middle of this, but I also um, have traveled around Israel with Israeli friends who feel so strongly the threat they 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 feel threatened. The way that they perceive this is that they are facing an existential challenge, that they need to control this territory in order to uh, guarantee the survival of of Israel as it exists, and also that the tragedy of the last few years is that there's so little interaction now between Israelis and Palestinian communities. I, I remember that when I visited 25 years ago, uh, you could drive very comfortably from Jerusalem to Bethlehem, and many Israelis would, would visit Bethlehem. Uh, and now there are big signs up, put up by the Israeli government saying, do not enter this territory, you could be a danger of your life. And so Bethlehem, which is a very uh, peaceful part of Palestine, I mean, there are, there are more tricky bits, visiting Hebron, Nablus may be a bit trickier, but even the most peaceful bits are now perceived bits just a few miles outside Jerusalem are perceived as being these very hostile alien territories. And you, you get the sense that there's so little understanding now about mm. different people's experiences and cultures. The trips that I did with, with Tony, the other thing, you, when, when you go from one to the other, you do really, really do have this strong sense of going from, to use the old language, you know, the first world to the third world. Uh, literally the moment you cross the border. I can remember one visit where I think yeah, Sharon was prime minister. And to this day, I don't know where we were driven, but I, I, the security around him was just extraordinary. We're driven into this sort of, it felt like a garage in a lift. And we drive in and it, it, honestly, it was like something out of a James Bond film. We drive in and the car stops and then we sort of, the car goes up in a lift and then we come out in a different place. And then suddenly we're in Sharon's house and then you cross the border. So you've got all that. And yep. then you cross the border and we, and, and we had, I remember having this meeting with, with Yasser Arafat just over the border. You felt you'd suddenly gone to a, a very poor country from a very wealthy country. Um, and that, I think, further exacerbates this sense of divisions that can't be bridged. Let, let's let's move on to the thing that you, I think, were quite right to raise and almost nobody talks about, which is what's happening now in Nagorno-Karabakh, which yeah. is this disputed territory between Armenia and Azerbaijan. Tell us a little bit about why you wanted to talk about that. Well, I've, I've, been, I've been talking to, to people, particularly on the, the Armenian government side, and I think it is one of those situations where... It just gets, it gets no kind of real, it doesn't really get any coverage at all in, in, in large parts of the, of the media, but it's an incredibly important story for lots and lots of different reasons. I mean, just what, so wind back to when the Soviet Union collapsed in the early nineties. You had ethnic 
Armenian separatists in this area, Karabakh, who broke away from Azerbaijan. There was a war, estimated 30,000 lives lost. Then there was a peace process that's been going on since 1994. But then there was a new war started in 2020. So 20, 25 years later, which is interesting, isn't it? The yeah, exactly. It flares up. I don't know about the Azerbaijan side, but I think there were 5,000 Armenians killed in that. Armenia was then forced to return occupied territories around Nagorno-Karabakh. So now Nagorno-Karabakh is landlocked inside Armenia, yep. but disputed. Yep. And it's governed by um, some, something called the NKR, which is Nagorno-Karabakh Republic. Russia has sent this billionaire to kind of be the sort of <laughs> the overlord, as it were. Um, and you have, if you look at, if you look at it on a map, Nagorno-Karabakh, which is it's relatively small, it's about 1,700 square miles, and, and very kind of agricultural, very yep. rural, yep. very foresty, yep. population roughly 120,000, so quite small numbers of people. But because it's landlocked, to go from Armenia to Nagorno-Karabakh, you have to cross about 20 kilometers of Azerbaijan. Yep. And this protest has now started. And it's a protest that is clearly organized by the Azerbaijan government. Yep. But it's, ale- it's reportedly protesting at gold mining yep. that's going on inside, yep. um, inside Nagorno-Karabakh. And what it means is that there's, apart from some traffic from the Red Cross, you can't get in and out. And they say, they are saying that within Nagorno-Karabakh now there's a humanitarian crisis. But meanwhile, you have all this geopolitical stuff going on around it. So I think that's a brilliant description of it. And and actually, Azerbaijan itself is also split into different bits. There's a bit called Nakhijivan, which is, again, separate. This is the other side of Armenia. Yeah, traveling through Armenian territory to get to. Yeah. Um, so to take listeners back to the real basics, um, Armenia, oldest Christian state in the world, um, first first country to convert to Christianity, Azerbaijan predominantly Muslim and related very closely linguistically, culturally to Turkey. And as you say, it's become a real center for geoconflict. So the war in the 90s saw the Armenians essentially win in Nagorno-Karabakh and kick out 600,000 to a million Azerbaijanis. And then 25 years later, Azerbaijan came back the other way. And when Azerbaijan came back the other way, which was, as you say, 2020, um, they came back this time supported very strongly by Turkey that provided them with drones. Uh, Turkish F-16s landed on Azerbaijani airfields, and they won this victory that essentially took back a lot of the territory and kicked out a lot of Armenians. And the Russians got a lot of credit in 2020. This was pre the invasion of Crimea for soft power and diplomacy and Ooh. sending in a couple of thousand troops and seeming to police a ceasefire and keep everything going. And they're still there. And they're still there. But as you've pointed out, they've completely failed to respond to this blockade, which is effectively strangling the Armenian population of Gorno-Karabakh. And the question is, why are they not responding? And it seems as though Russia's power is ebbing. And probably it's that Putin now needs to keep Turkey on side because he's got so few friends out there in the world that he's not prepared to have this fight anymore. Mm. The The other relatively new factor is that the European Union has now got involved and has sent this mission, civilian mission, to monitor the border. 
which Moscow has now said is a, a terrible provocation, uh, oh, one wow. of their favorite words. And the Americans, uh, Blinken, talking of Blinken again, Blinken has expressed support for the European Union taking an interest. And if you look at, you look at the map, you've got Turkey, you've got Iran uh, on one of the other borders. Um, the Armenians say that the Pakistanis are getting involved and getting engaged. And you talked about the, 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 where they got the support from Turkey in the previous war. They now have support from Israel in terms of drones, where there's a bit of a sort of deal going on for, you know, drones and oil supplies. And of course, the, and the British, just to throw in a, a slight British element in here, of course, one of the biggest players inside Azerbaijan is BP. Absolutely, because Azerbaijan, unlike Armenia, is the big oil and gas hub of the region. And that's yeah. one of the reasons they've been able to fund this over the 25 years, build up their armed forces recapture. Um, maybe in a Another episode, the story of what's happening to all these states that were part of the former Soviet Union around the fringe of Russia. And they're in particularly in Central Asia and the Caucasus, their failure really to make the transition to liberal democracies, the ways in which Russia has continued to bail out dictators and from Belarus all the way through to Kazakhstan. And these, the strange nature of the rule of Aliyev in Azerbaijan or mm. indeed equivalent to Armenia. I think the, this is this is good stuff because this is right at the center of what's happening in the in what we pompously call the global order. Yeah, absolutely. And 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 it, and it is it is interesting how in this one, for example, that Ukraine seems to side much more with Azerbaijan. Oh wow. I wasn't expecting that. There was a, an interview recently with one of Zelensky's key people who said that the essentially was saying that the whole thing is being whipped up uh, by the Armenians, possibly by the Russians as well, but to take attention away from Ukraine. Oh, goodness. And essentially saying that this one doesn't really matter that much. Gosh, um, when you would have thought their natural instincts the other direction. Well, yeah. Okay, well, a lot more to be discussed. Thank you for raising Nagorno-Karabakh. And I said, without you, we would not have we definitely not have got there. And I think maybe that brings us to the end of this week's pod. I shall be off now to see your friend Jacob Rees-Mogg, your fellow Etonian, and I shall do exactly as you said. I have my tactics prepared. Very good luck. Very good. I'm rooting for you. <laughs> Bye-bye. Bye-bye.